Grace Chapel. I'm glad you're here. Glad you uh, made it out on this uh, early Sunday morning. Um, it's a wonderful day to celebrate what Jesus has done in our lives and what he's going to do in our lives. And, and, and that's such a wonderful thing. We have been going through a series on giving. And uh, it's been a great series. Today is the last day of that series. So we're going to end it today with, it, with a fantastic passage. Uh, and so if you have missed one or, or maybe multiple uh, uh, service, uh, uh, Sundays for this series, just to give you a recap, giving started with us talking about generosity, giving generously in community. And, and, and at that, that week, God asked us to not um, give out of guilt but, and not give flippantly, but to give intentionally and to do it with joy. Uh, and then we, we talked about about um, intentional courage. When, when we give, it takes intentional courage to, to be able to sacrifice something that we have and give it uh, back to the Lord. So that was that week. And, and then last week, we talked about vulnerability. We talked about being a steward and, and how to be a good steward. You have to use vulnerability in order to manage what God has put us in charge of. Uh, and this week, we get to finish it. So I'm, I'm really thrilled. I'm really excited. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, begin the, the, the sermon this morning? Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity we have uh, just to be here, Lord, to take a deep breath to relax. Um, Lord, you are so good, and your goodness rings in these walls, and we thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for these wonderful people that give so much of their time and their effort and their money to what you are doing. And God, I ask that you would, um, that you would double down, that you, you have asked us to challenge you in this, to test you in this, and we are. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would move today that you would move in our hearts, and that as we leave this morning, we would feel uh, deeper in love with you and more confident about the things that you've asked us to do. God, I ask if there's anyone in this room who is unsure about who you are or how much you love them, uh, that after this morning, they would know what you think. They would know how much you love them. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Uh, and give us the wisdom and intentionality to explore the depths of your character this morning. In your name, amen. Some of you might not know this about me, but I love speed. I love speed so much, I love video games that simulate speed. I love fast cars. I love fast motorcycles. I love fast uh, roller coasters. I love everything that goes fast. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with the danger of it. I'm obsessed with the thrill of it. When you are moving down the highway at, of course, the speed limit, right? Be careful there. The heart pounding, the adrenaline, I love it. I've owned motorcycles in my life, and, and I remember this one motorcycle I had was yellow, and it was like this beautiful, uh, dark, kind of uh, tinted yellow. It was so fast. I can remember hitting speeds of undisclosed amount, that, that just thrilled me. It made me feel like I was flying. Things at that speed operate differently and the risk factor is through the roof. The adrenaline, the, the chance. I've since put away those um, speed dreams, those, those uh, uh, adrenaline feeling, uh, excitement of propelling myself down the highway at untold speeds. 
You fast forward to me having kids, being married and having kids, and, and you know, I try to tell my kids about how much fun it is to, to, to be responsible, but also to enjoy the speed. And, and here's the thing. Um, my son is getting to the age where he's starting to understand a little bit about the, the, the mixed feeling, the, the fear, and also the adrenaline, and, and wow, it's, it's starting to take hold. You know, we've been going to Disney World for a couple of years in the past, and um, uh, he, a couple years ago, asked me if he could ride... Uh, Hollywood Tower of Terror. Has anybody ridden that ride? Hollywood Tower? Yeah, some of you have ridden that ride. So here's another little confession. I like forward speed. I do not like down speed at all to the point that I can ride a roller coaster that does this at lightning fast speed, but if it goes like this, I lose it. All bets are off. And it's ironic. It's ironic that I could ride a motorcycle and enjoy it as fast as I have Yet sitting in a ride with, at the time, seven-year-old son, he's having a ball. It's no problem. And I am, like, sweating. I'm, I'm just, like, terrified. You were standing in line, and I'm kind of gearing up because I've ridden this before. And, and the ride, you know, you kind of wind around outside of the building, and then you get inside the building, and it's, like, all dark. And the, 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 the candles are flickering, and it's all about, you know, the, the twilight zone. And it's kind of this haunted feeling. I'm, like, rolling my eyes, like, give me a break. Let's just get on the ride already. So we go through and we get to the, the elevator, right? And you, and you sit down in the elevator and I'm like, oh, this is great. And I, those, that thing clinches down on my lap and I'm like, uh-oh. And the elevator doors close and I go, wait, 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 no, 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 don't close up, don't close up, I want out. And I, all I could do from not shouting in, 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 in sheer terror, and that was just getting ready to start the ride. And then the elevator starts propelling you straight up like a rocket and you're going, oh my gosh, we have to come down at some point terrified. I look over at my son and he's just chilling. It's fine. I'm losing it. It's so ironic that I would, I would take my life in my own hands with a motorcycle. But this little harmless ride, and, and by the way, zero people have ever died on that ride. That's how many, that's how dangerous it is. It's ironic. We use this phrase safety first. You guys use that phrase? Oh, buckle up kids, safety first. It's not first. To be honest with you, safety has never been first. I mean, maybe fourth or fifth at best, right? Because if safety was first, we would live in a, in a padded cell and get food handed to us and never go anywhere and never do anything. Now, safety is like one of those things that we add to. We're like, well, we have to do this thing that's a little dangerous, so we, we kind of want to think about it a little bit, right? Just think about a chainsaw. What a chainsaw is and does is danger. And it's like, well, we have to use this amazingly difficult, dangerous tool, so let's put on a mask, right? Let's put on gloves. That'll help. No, no, no. It's not. Safety is not first. Safety is like third or fourth. And it's ironic because we, we tout the safety thing, right? It's like the fear that you have getting on an airplane. Right? You buckle that seatbelt and, and the jets start shaking before they release the brakes. And you're like, oh, my gosh, we're all going to die, you know? And you take off into it. And it's like... You have, a, you have a, higher, a much higher risk of dying in a car accident on the way to the airport than on a plane. Now, we don't even think about that, right? It's because it's what we're used to. We're used to that. Safety's not first, and it's ironic. It's, it's so ironic. You know, another ironic thing is my wife's a professor, and, and she teaches a lot of uh, students um, online, and both in-seat and online. And, and every now and then, she has to face the reality that these students are not quite honest Right? So, they, so they're cheating involved, and she has to report them when they plagiarize and all this stuff. And the irony is, 
they put like three times the work into cheating than if they just did the course, did the homework, they would have been, had an had a easier time and they would have gotten a better grade and they wouldn't have gotten kicked out of the class. It's ironic. We put so much energy and effort into things that, that aren't dangerous, aren't scary, and, and that take uh, more work than if we just accept the fact that driving the car is more dangerous than riding on an airplane. It's ironic. It's ironic. We are obsessed with asking how much. How far can we go? I can go X amount of miles an hour on a motorcycle, but can I go X amount of miles an hour plus one, plus five, plus ten? How fast can I go? We build rides that make you feel like you're on the edge. You're about to die. And it's exhilarating. Back of our minds, of course, we know chances of Chances of anyone dying on Hollywood Tower Terror is slim, but I, I would be the first one. I know it. I'll be the first one to do it. That's what my fear tells me. No, we, we like to draw the line. We like to know how much. You know, we've been asking this question for thousands of years. How much is enough? How much giving is enough giving? How much work do I have to do to acquire? What, do I have, what rules do I have to follow in order to obtain spiritual security. We've been asking those questions forever, and, and, and lucky for us, somebody asked Jesus this question, how far is enough? And three of his disciples were smart enough and quick enough to record it in the years after his death and resurrection. So we are going to look at someone asking the question, how far is enough? How much is enough for me to get eternal life? So if you would, I'd like you to turn to Matthew Chapter 19. This pericope or, or, or little story in the text is also called the rich young ruler. And it's a fascinating piece of scripture. And so I'll just jump in here. We're going to start in verse 16 of chapter 19. So Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Can you hear the question? How far is enough? What do I have to do? Let's, let's just boil it all down to bare minimums here, right? What do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus replies, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Young, rich, probably educated man shows up and says, what do I have to do, Lord? What do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus says, keep in mind, when you say good, there's really only one person that's good. Only one. And his name is God. The irony, there's that irony again. The irony is, is the rich young ruler doesn't know it, but he's addressing Jesus, the Son of God. The three in one. He's, the, he's part of the Trinity. He was there when the world was created, and he will be there at the end, and he's been there all the way in between. So Jesus is saying, isn't it ironic that you say good, and you don't know who you're talking to? And the fact the rich young ruler doesn't know what he's talking to will soon come to light. Jesus says, listen, if you want to do what is good, follow the instructions of the one who is good. Do the commandments. Follow the commandments. In verse 18, he can't let it go. See, he's young. He can't, he can't let it go. And he says, which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. He throws out a few commandments for the rich young ruler. And isn't it interesting, the response? Verse 20, all this I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And in other gospels, he says, I've done all of these since I was young. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? You know, the story before this, right before this, is about children coming to Jesus. And, and the disciples get all mad that the children are taking up Jesus' time, right? And Jesus rebukes the disciples and he says, listen, these little ones, let them come. Because they've inherited the kingdom of heaven. Young, innocent, no knowledge of any kind of commandment or obedience or, or anything. All they know is they want Jesus. Jesus says, hey, they entered the kingdom. They're inheriting the kingdom. Some even say there's a difference between inheriting and, and being and getting in. This guy's just wanting to get in. Jesus is saying the children have inherited it. We don't want to split hairs this morning. But it's ironic. Isn't it ironic? This young, confident, educated, wealthy saunter, guy who saunters up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do? And Jesus says, do what the one who is good says to do. And he says, yeah, 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 I've done that. But I feel like I'm lacking something. He's got a problem. He thinks he's lacking something, yet the children inherit it. What do I still lack, he says. Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Just when the rich young ruler thought he was going to prove to all his friends and everybody around that he'd done enough, that he had found the line, the minimum requirement of entering the kingdom, Jesus says, oh, that's the line? No, 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 that's not the line. That's the line. Do it all. Give everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Give everything you have, and then you're in good shape. And this is confusing. This is very confusing. In fact, it's so confusing, even Jesus' disciples have no idea what he's talking about. 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Even the way the text reads, it's like an assumption. Oh, well, he's got great wealth, <laughs> obviously. He's not going to give it up. Who does that? Who just gives everything they have up for this? He had great wealth, so he was sad. He's not going to give up great wealth just for this Jesus guy. I'm going to do the commandments. I'm going to try to do the bare minimum I can do. And then, if that's not good enough, oh well, I'm not going to give up my wealth for it. The interesting thing is Jesus is actually showing the rich young ruler what it looks like to live a redeemed life. You want to talk about the commandments? When you live a redeemed life, you don't even think about the commandments. The commandments are easy. When you live a redeemed life, wealth becomes opportunity to bless those around you. And that's what scripture says it is. When you live a redeemed life, giving is joyful. 
when you're trying to do the bare minimum, when you're obsessed with the rules, when you want the minimum required commandments to enter the kingdom, oh, that's hard. That's really difficult. In fact, so difficult that the disciples want to know. So then Jesus says to the disciples in verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. What? That's an insult to all rich people, isn't it? 24, again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. And you're thinking what the disciples were thinking. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them, and I think he loved them in that moment and said, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible. There's a long pause there. And then Jesus smiles and says, but with God, all things are possible. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would use this analogy? And there's, there's some speculation about this analogy with the camel and the eye of a needle and forcing a camel through the eye of a needle. How is that supposed to work? And, and some people have said, well, hey, you know, there's this gate you know, in Jerusalem, and it's a big gate, and there's a little hole, there's a little doorway, and, and you could get a camel through there if you unloaded the camel, and you got the camel on its knees, and you got to force it through, and it's really difficult, but it's possible. So Jesus is saying it's difficult, but not impossible, right? Well, there's some speculation about that, because that rumor started about 400 AD, and there's really no record of a gate being called the eye of a, uh, or the eye of a needle before that, so they're not really sure. It could go either way. You know, you could pick and choose. But here's an interesting thing. Look at the disciples' response to what Jesus told the rich young ruler. Who could enter the kingdom of heaven? And then look at Jesus' response to the disciples. Yeah, no one can. No one can. It's impossible. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So I kind of like to use the analogy from the standpoint of, yeah, it's a literal needle and it's a literal camel and you do the math. Impossible. Won't work. Can't happen. And there's this long pause and the disciples already start kind of looking at their feet like, well, what the heck are we doing? But, but, with God all things are possible. The rich young ruler had his cart before the horse. He had the line in the sand already drawn. And he's saying, how far do I have to go? In fact, some people think that even the best um, Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law of the day really thought the law was like minimum requirements. So if you want brownie points, if you want extra, you've got to do more. And that was kind of this vague, ambiguous doing more. So really the rich young ruler is like, listen, I've followed everything God told me to do, but I know i got to do a little extra. So on the DL, let me know what i got to do and I'll do it, okay? So they're creating another commandment. They're creating another law or rule without even saying it. This is how far we go when we try to come up with the bare minimum. When we want to know how far is enough. Jesus lights that question on fire and destroys it. There is no far enough. Because if you're in that mindset, you're already putting the cart before the horse. Just look, at to, the, look to the children. Look to the children in the passage before. This isn't even in their mind. All they know is Jesus. 
All they know is he's somehow safe. He's somehow where I need to be. If I'm close to him, I'm going to be okay. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And don't anybody try to take him away from me. The rich young ruler is wanting a bare minimum. But what he's not understanding is to have a redeemed life, you need Jesus. And when your life is redeemed and being transformed by by the king, then these things aren't even on your mind. You're not even thinking about commandments and rules. You're just living the way Jesus wants you to live. And sure, you get it wrong and, and you mess up and you come back and Jesus welcomes you back and this is process. I get it. It's not perfect. But oh, isn't it simple? Isn't it so much simpler? I have a needle. (laughs) His disciples have to be thinking like, what is he going to come up with next? I have a needle. It's ironic. It's ironic that we care so much about the bare minimum. And when we focus on the bare minimum, the laws and the rules and the requirements just stack up. And so we take two options. We fake it, and we try to communicate to everybody that we've got all these rules and laws under control, and and it just gets more and more stressful and more anxiousness and sweeping stuff under the rug, and oh, I messed that one up, but nobody saw, so nobody has to know, and and, and on and on we go, and you you have this fake um, confidence where you swagger in. Jesus, I've done all this since I was young. (laughs) Really, have you loved your neighbor as yourself since you were young? Because I would bet if you really define that appropriately, no one can. And that's the point. It's the cart. It's an indicator of a, re- of a redeemed life. The more confident we get that we have followed all the rules, the more it starts to crumble beneath our feet. And we start to realize, maybe me, maybe I know, and maybe my best friend knows, but nobody needs to know that. I, can't, I don't have this. And that doubt kind of bleeds out in places and in ways. It bleeds out in a way a rich young ruler has to get another question in. I think I'm missing something. What am I missing? I've done all the things that you said I'm supposed to do. What am I missing? And Jesus is saying, actually, you're missing the the horse. (laughs) You're missing the point, the main point. It's about redemption, and I'm the only one that offers redemption. If you want to know how to get into the kingdom of heaven, this is what you have to do. You have to lie down on the ground. You have to let Jesus bind your hands and bind your feet and throw you over his shoulder, and he's going to walk you into the kingdom. It's the only way you're going to get there. You can't get into the kingdom. It's impossible. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is the point this morning. Entrust yourself and your gifts, whatever you have, to Jesus. And let him own the outcomes. The rich young ruler could not sacrifice his wealth because he could not come to grips with what it would look like if his wealth was gone. And that's the very thing Jesus wanted him to do. Because if he did that, it means he entrusted himself to Jesus. Owning the outcomes. We love to own the outcomes. But when we give it up, 
We have to let him own the outcomes, good or bad. When we have entrusted ourselves to him, he gets to own it. Here's an ironic thing. We trust Jesus with our souls. We say, yes, I'm saved. When I die, I'm going to see the white light, and I'm going to follow that white light, and Jesus is going to be waiting for me, and I'm going to heaven, and it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to entrust that to him. But when it comes to my money, (laughs) I have to keep that. I can't give that. That's ironic. If you talk about value, your entity, your identity, your soul is, is of utmost value. And your wealth, it comes and it goes. Even those that have a lot of it say it's not all that. It comes and it goes. So so what Jesus is asking of this rich young ruler is, not only do I want your wealth, and not only do I want all your abilities, the ways you follow the rules, your discipline, your, your intentionality, your wisdom, your courage, all of that stuff, not only do I want that, I want you. I want you. Matter of fact, just go back and look at those kids who are probably crying because I left. Look at the children. They want me, and they know that's what they need. Entrust yourself and your gifts to Jesus and let him own the outcome. How much is enough? How much is enough? I think if we're asking the question, we're already on the wrong track. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're sitting here going, I don't really even know who this Jesus guy is you're talking about. I don't even know how to trust him. I've never put my trust in Jesus. I hear a lot of people talk about Jesus. I've never done that. Step one, to trust him, to give your life to him, to pray that prayer and say, Jesus, I cannot do this alone. I'm a failure. I've messed up. I can't get it right. I need you. Oh, I hope you prayed that prayer if that's you. I hope that you invite him in. I hope you invite him in and say, I, I, I can't, I need you. I hope that you, you embody those children in the story before that just want to be with him. Maybe you're sitting here going, listen, I trusted Jesus when I was six, and, 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 and I've, I've, I've lived a, a, an imperfect but a Christian life, and I've, I've tried to do my best, and I tithe, and I, and I spend time at church, and I try to witness, I try to tell people about Jesus, and, and, and here's where I am, and I'm somewhere along the journey of being transformed. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're struggling a little bit with the finance piece. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I struggle with it too. But this is what I would say to you. Jesus is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. This is not about Grace Chapel. This is not about the needs and specific wants that this church has. Although if we're on our knees and we're we're begging for Jesus to lead us, our wants and desires are his. But this is not about giving to Grace Chapel. This is about giving to Jesus. And this is why you take this idea into your prayer closet And you kneel before your king and you say, you tell me. You tell me what to do. Who do I give to? What do I need to do to continue being transformed by you? And you let him tell you. It might be hard to hear. 
It might be hard to hear like the rich young ruler had a hard time with what Jesus said. That's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. Because he is so trustworthy. In fact, he's way more trustworthy than any amount of money that you could possibly have. That's who he is. God says, test me in this. Test me in this. Try me. Just see what happens. I have a quote by one of my favorite authors. C.S. Lewis says, in Mere Christianity, he says, I do not believe we can settle on how much we ought to give. (laughs) I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. There's wisdom there. There's wisdom there because that reflects something that is so important. That reflects the king. Giving more than we have reflects the king. Because Jesus gave more than he could spare for you. He gave more than he had for you. He gave his life for you. And that's such a great way to look at it. And this morning, we get to take communion. We get to celebrate the fact that he gave more than he could spare to you and to me. This is not about paying him back. We could never pay him back. This is about emulating the kind of person, the kind of king, the kind of servant that he is. So, we entrust us and our finances to Jesus. And we let him own the outcomes. And this morning we are reminded that Jesus did that for us. He, had, he gave more than he could spare for us. So this is how we're going to do this. I'm going to read a passage. I'm going to pray. And then as Matt plays, I want you to think about Jesus giving more than he had for you. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing his little church in Corinth. And he's trying to describe to them what Jesus did. And he, and he says this. I'm a, I'm a messenger, guys. Verse 23 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim what he gave you. By taking communion, you're holding his gift high. And you're saying, I didn't deserve this. He gave this to me because of who he is. And by taking communion, you're saying, I cannot wait until he comes back. I can't wait for the return of the king. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your sacrifice for us is unimaginable. You took the philosophy of giving more than you had for our sake. And God, as we think about this rich young ruler and his desire to know how much, what the bare minimum was, 
we are reminded of your sacrifice. God, I ask that you challenge us today, this morning. You challenge us. This is not about more. This is not about less. This is not about giving now or giving in the future. Lord, the point is, you gave yourself for us. And we can entrust us. We can entrust our souls. We can entrust our families, our relationships, our work. We can entrust all of that to you. And we can let you own the outcome because you're trustworthy. You're the one who modeled this for us. So Lord, as we take communion, I ask that we honor you by celebrating the gift that you've given us. In your name, amen.